Not long ago, my daughter arrived home from work at her office, and she was distressed and upset, um, and she told Joyce and me why. The previous weekend, uh, a colleague of hers, a woman where she works, and she had joy, uh, Rachel had developed a friendship with this woman, has a friendship with this woman. This woman and her husband took about an hour and a half drive from their home in suburban Chicago uh, to central Illinois, about a 90-mile drive. And they visited with the woman's father. Um, and on the way home, there was a car crash. The woman was slightly injured, but her husband was killed. And uh, Rachel was relating to us how this man had been so kind to her just because he was kind. He saw, for example, the bumper on her car was misaligned and uh, he went out of his way just to fix it. He knew how to do those kinds of things, fixed it easily and quickly. And Rachel was lamenting the loss of this man and the pain she was seeing in her friend at work at the loss of her husband. Later on, as I tracked with Rachel what was happening with the arrangements and the relationships that the woman had with her church. Uh, she related to me, to us, that um, this woman was so thankful for her uh, church body. Uh, women of the church brought her meals and stayed with her during the day and even stayed in her home overnight and prayed with her and wept with her and recollected the good things that her husband was and with confidence prayed that he was with the Lord as he always wanted to be. Now, who would do that? Who would do that for you? Maybe your mom or your dad or maybe one of your siblings, people you're the closest to in life. Uh, but this woman enjoyed these kinds of fruits because of the relationships she had in the local church. Some of these women didn't even know her very well, but they stayed with her overnight. And she later said, and I remember this very well, she said, I, I'm, I'm so glad that I didn't have to spend the first nights by myself alone without my husband. Uh, the fear and the dread and the grief and the loneliness. She said, I didn't have to spend those nights alone, but I spent them with my sisters in Christ. I want to talk to you this morning about body life, uh, what it means to be involved in the local church, an expression of the Lord's body, whether a church of mid-size such as this one or smaller or really large, it doesn't matter. There's a picture the Lord gives us for body life. And I would like to commend those among you who are doing this really well. You're involved in the race. You're involved in the run. You're involved in, in ministering to one another as your gifting and your talents, talents allow and demand. And maybe give a little nudge to those who are stuck. Uh, maybe a little push to those who are kind of coasting through the relationships in the local church. Uh, maybe even a slight rebuke to those who are comfortable. There is no comfortable ride or a comfortable walk in the local church in the Lord's body. There's a, a run, a race, there's a, a challenge, there's a war, there's a fight. The world, the flesh, and the devil, we fight all the time. But I wanted to give you a little um, picture of what this looks like in reality, in, in actual living with the one another's of the Bible, where the Bible speaks of the one another's of the life as a Christian. Love one another. There's 34 of them, by the way. I'm going to read this list so we can get a grip. There's other things the Bible says about how to live together in the local church, but the first one is love one another. There's 18 references in the New Testament of loving one another, the most famous being, of course, 
uh, 1 Corinthians 13, chapter, uh, chapter 13, starting in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Eighteen times the scripture references the habit of practicing love in the local church. Big church, small church, in between church, it doesn't matter. When a member of the church hurts, we hurt. You ever stub your little toe on the corner of a wall? Or maybe caught it on the corner of a chair. I was thinking about that this morning as I was even reading in, in the previous chapter where in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes about the body, the body, the body. Now we know from Colossians 1.18 that Jesus is the head of the church, the head of the church, and the rest of us form his body with different roles and functions. And verse 22 says, The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. They're indispensable, like your little piggy toe. If you smash your piggy toe, your whole body says, oh my goodness, that hurts. See, that's what it's like in the local church. Or that's what it should be like. The Lord is so gracious to us, he gives us pictures of what it's like to live this Christian life because he knows that we're just here and we experience things and he wants us to understand. So he condescends to us and gives us pictures to help us understand. But I want to read this list of body life words in the scriptures. Just be patient as we listen and read together in addition to the love one another section. And ask yourself whether you're doing this. Not perfectly, but it's the direction of our life, not the perfection of our life. Is the direction of my life involved in these kinds of one another's in the, in the scriptures? Accept one another. And by the way, this is just the New Testament words. Accept one another. Be devoted to one another. Give preference to one another. Care for one another. Suffer with one another. Rejoice with one another. Be hospitable to one another. Encourage one another. Build up one another. Be kind to one another. Be compassionate to one another. Forgive one another. Greet one another. Stir up one another. Tolerate one another. Comfort one another. Bear with one another. Pray for one another. Serve one another. Wait for one another. Instruct or admonish or warn one another. Confess your sins to one another. Serve one another. Are we tired yet? Live in peace with one another. Seek after the good for one another. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Use your spiritual gifts to serve one another. Be humble toward one another. Accept one another. Carry one another's burdens. Bear with the failings of one another. Live in harmony with one another. Be concerned for one another. How do you do this? We all struggle with sin. The world, the flesh, and the devil are our enemies from Ephesians chapter 2. I was reminded when I was pondering this message of a man I used to know named Bill. Uh, Bill, in my previous church home, in our previous church home, Bill was a part of the church. It was a big church. And... Um, Joyce and I led growth groups for, I don't know, 18 years. We were in that church for 19 years. We led, led growth groups for 18 of those years, year after year, month after month, you know, and it just ticks by. 
And toward the end of our life in that church, I was uh, leading a small group with Joyce. There were couples in the group. There were singles in the group. There was all kinds of people, types in the group, and we were really blessed to have it. And I was running into Bill frequently in this church. And I thought, what an unusual person Bill is. I'm, I'm ashamed to tell you what I was thinking. It's not to my credit. It's to my shame. I didn't want Bill in my growth group. Um, Bill was unusual. He was hard to talk with. You couldn't have a conversation with Bill. He was not intelligent. He wasn't smart. He wasn't interesting. He wasn't handsome. Uh, women didn't like him, and men didn't respect him. And I thought, I think I should invite him to participate in our growth group. And I thought, I don't want to invite him to our growth group. We got a good growth group. We're doing great things together. But it, it was impressed upon me, I need to invite him to the growth group. And so I did. And so he was in our growth group, we were working with him, and, and uh, I was blessed to have him in the group. He was, he was actually, a, in a quiet kind of a way, a, a blessing to our group. And so we were working together, trying to do the one another's in this context. Well, Bill stopped showing up. After quite a few months participating with us, and we were really doing well with him, uh, after several months of participating with us, he just stopped showing up, and he wouldn't return my phone calls. He, he wouldn't talk to me at all. He stopped going to church, stopped going to growth group, and wouldn't respond to me when I would reach out to him and say, hey, Bill, I haven't talked to you for a while. What's happening? How are you? What, what are you doing? He bagged groceries at one of the local stores. And I even went to the store and, and reached out to him, and as he's bagging groceries, he wouldn't look at me. He would just say, I can't talk to you. I, I am uh, busy right now. And I said, well, let's talk. Let's, let's get together. But he never responded. And finally, I talked to uh, two of the leading guys in the church. <laughs> and I said, you know, Bill's disappeared from my group. I don't understand what's happened to him. He doesn't return my calls. He's no longer going to church. Does anybody know? Do you guys know what happened to him? He won't talk to me. And one of the men said, ha, 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 Bill, I remember Bill. I said, what? He goes, well, a couple of months ago, you know, Bill walked up uh, after the service to talk to the preacher and this other man, and he was opening the scriptures and saying, now, explain to me this text and help me understand this. And as he turned the page, out flew a flyer, a piece of paper from his Bible. It's not important to tell you what the flyer contained. It, it was uh, gravely embarrassing to Bill. And uh, as, the, as this man told me and related to me this account, he said, yeah, it fell out of his Bible and we picked it up and looked at it and we gave it back to him, and we snickered. They snickered at him and laughed, and then they ended the conversation, and they walked in the back of the church in the office area, and they laughed. They laughed. And I said, oh, you laughed at Bill. And I said, you, you laughed him out of the church. He was in my growth group. See, I was, I was trying to help Bill. I know, look, I know Bill had nothing to offer, but you know what? You, you, you're wrong. This is wrong what you did. And he goes, this, the man who's responding to me said, well, ha, you know, he's a Pharisee. Bill's a Pharisee. He pretends to be one thing. He's another. He's a Pharisee. Jesus laughed at Pharisees. Jesus mocked Pharisees. And I said, you're, he wasn't a Pharisee. He had nothing. He had nothing. He had nobody. You're the Pharisee. 
The Pharisees had all the power in the community to make your life miserable. They could kick you out of the synagogue. They could make you a loner and an outcast in a community. Whereas if you were a loner and an outcast, you were, maybe you would die because there's nowhere else for you to go in Israel. You're the Pharisee. You laughed him out of the church. I was so upset, I wrote them a letter about it and got nothing from them. No repentance. You know, later I found out after all the, uh, several months went by and Bill wouldn't talk to me still. And um, I, uh, I heard that he had died. The day he died, I heard he died and I heard the account and uh, he had lung cancer. He didn't go to the doctor and it was horrific. He died alone and I decided to go to the wake. I went to the wake and there were, I was one of maybe two people there. And I met his sister and she asked me to who I was, and I, I told her who I was, and she got, she scowled it so angry at me, and I thought, oh, that, this is such, such a disaster for the reputation of the Lord in this community. This woman doesn't know me, but she knows what happened to her brother, and she's mad at me because of what happened to her brother, because I represent that church. You see, this is the, this is the hard thing about body life. Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes people disappoint you. Sometimes when you go to admonish or warn a person, that person might not respond well to you. That person might say, I don't like what you're saying to me. I'm not going to listen to what you're saying to me. Not only do I not like what you're saying, I don't like you. I'm going to be mad at you. But you see, the Lord calls us to do this. It's scary. It can be hurtful. But the Lord calls us to do this. We're going to be looking at two sections of scriptures in uh, Hebrews primarily. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do have your Bibles with you. Open up to Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Before we get into the specifics of that section of the text, let me pray. Father, we are so glad that uh, we're able to gather together. Maybe there are people here who don't know you, or maybe there are people here watching uh, online who don't know you. Um, but I pray that somehow, through the experience of this local fellowship, that they would be softened in their understanding of who you are, and that they would come to faith in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. But Lord, for the rest of us who know you, who walk with you in body life, I pray that we would take the words of your scriptures, uh, let them soften our hearts, let us not be stiff-necked or hard-hearted, let us walk in the way you instruct us to walk. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth would reflect accurately your word. I pray that uh, you would be pleased with this worship service, that you would be blessed and rejoicing in your own heart to call us your children. I ask this in the great name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Hebrews chapter 5. Beginning in verse 11, we're going to go through uh, verse 11 through uh, chapter 6, verse 2. We're going to do two sections through chapter 6, verse 2, then we're going to skip down and do verses 9 through 12 in Hebrews 6. But first, Hebrews 5, starting in verse 11, he starts out and says about this. Well, we have to know what about this means. He's talking about the source of salvation. As you see in the previous verse, he's talking about Jesus being perfect and he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say. About the nature of eternal salvation in Christ, we have much to say. And about the high priest uh, after the order of Melchizedek, you have much to learn about that, but we can't teach you these things. Look Look what he says at verse 11. About this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time... You ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Stop. Let's go back to verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. He's writing to, uh, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. It it might have been Apollos. It might have been Barnabas. But we don't know. But most, most likely he's writing to Jewish believers uh, who are suffering uh, a struggle against persecution and, and uh, loss. But he says we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. It's interesting that, that phrase dull of hearing. I, I chased it around a little bit. It really means that they were lazy and stupid. The literal Greek there refers to a laziness and a stupidness. Look what he says, you have become. It's a settled state of being. They have settled into the state of being. You have become this. Maybe you weren't like this when you first became a Christian, but he says you have become this way. And that's the danger, one of the dangers of the Christian life. You get settled in and you get lazy and essentially stupid. I read one commentator who said, you know, this comment by the writer of Hebrews is really a gentle rebuke of the people. And I thought, I don't think so. Now imagine the writer of Hebrews, let's say it was Apollos, just for sake of saying. Apollos says to me, he says, Gordon, you know, I'd like to explain to you some of the deeper things of Christ, but I can't because you are dull of hearing. And really what I'm saying is you're stupid and you're lazy. You're like a rock. That's another implication. You're like a rock. It's a settled state of being. Why don't you come out of your lazy state and do something differently because you're not doing right? That's not a gentle rebuke. It's a pretty much a fork in your face type of rebuke. You become dull of hearing. The edginess of it is taken off in our English translation. But he's very aggressive. He's not happy. It's hard to explain to you because you're dull of hearing. Verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, and I want to make sure we understand something, for by this time you ought to be teachers doesn't mean the teacher in this reference means someone who stands up before a group of people and explains the scriptures. It could mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. What he's referencing is the fact that if you've been a Christian for a while, you ought to have enough foundational understanding of the faith to be able to explain it and to teach others about the faith, the basics of the faith, the understandings of the faith. This is what he means. Not everyone is a teacher. It's a body. Remember, it's a body with different functions and different roles. If everyone is an eye, where would the hearing be, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God, the basic principles of the truths of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. 
You need to be fed milk over and over. You don't give pizza to a baby. You don't give steak to a baby. You discern that this person is a spiritual baby. You need milk, and you need to understand how we are to live in body life. There's a, a, a scale that has always helped me in understanding this concept, and you may be familiar with it. It's called the Maturity Ministry Timeline. Maturity Ministry Timeline. So on the vertical axis is uh, maturity, godliness, Christ-likeness. <coughs> Pardon me. And on the horizontal is the timeline, how long you've known Christ. So in the vertical timeline godliness, you have Christ who's in the stratosphere of eternity of absolute perfection, obviously. But think of the, the most godly person you know. Maybe, maybe he's up here somewhere. But he didn't start that way, or she didn't start that way. As a baby in Christ, that, that person was immature in the faith. It doesn't matter if that person is 10 years old or 60 years old. A new believer is a baby in Christ. Maybe they have some intellectual knowledge, but they haven't applied the Scriptures to walk in body life in a healthy way. And so they start out small. And as you go in time, you should be making gradual progress toward Christ-likeness and toward maturity, making progress on the vertical axis. And there are dips and there are seasons where it doesn't go well for you, that maybe you have a bad month or maybe even, maybe even a bad six months. But over time, there ought to be progress in your maturity. And progress meaning Christ-likeness. But if you're stagnant, and if you don't get involved in people's lives, if you don't get involved in the local church in doing body life together, the one another's together and more in the Scriptures, you're going to stagnate. And you're going to become like an ingrown toenail in the local church. I've known several ingrown toenails. They're not fun. And sometimes you have to deal with an ingrown toenail rather aggressively, and that's okay. But you've got the believers who are immature and those who are mature, the doers in the work of Christ. I'm reminded of John 14, 21, where Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will reveal myself to him. Why isn't God doing something in my life? Why am I not sensing his presence? Well, maybe instead of criticizing the church, maybe we should look at, I should look at my own spiritual walk uh, to see my desire for Christ. Do I have a hunger for him? Do I really desire to walk with him, to be a blessing to others instead of being trouble to others? You need milk, not solid food, verse 13. For everyone who lives on milk, you notice he says you live on milk. There's nothing else. You're just eating milk. That's all you're getting. You're living on it. And anyone who does that is unskilled in the word of righteousness, the scriptures. The goal is to be skilled in handling God's word. Whether you're teaching before people or or just working with a couple of people at work or your home or wherever you are, at your office. If you're dining on milk all the time, you're unskilled in the word of righteousness. We need to grow. Don't be children, he says. In verse 14, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You notice it requires constant practice. Uh, in Second in Peter, uh, Lucas taught us about the importance of diligence. Actually, he's teaching us from what God says about the importance of diligence, recorded through Peter. 
the importance of diligence, that anything you want to grow in or get better at requires diligence. We know this very well in the athletic world. We know this very well if you're a student or if you want to get better at a skill or a trade or whatever you want to do. It takes diligent practice, constant practice, and that is precisely what the author of Hebrews is talking about. That's what the Lord is teaching us today. It takes constant practice, and if you're not constantly practicing, you're not going to get better. You're going to grow weaker. You're going to stop doing what you need to do to become more than you are. I like to say, um, I can't expect people to do more than they do without first becoming more than they are. I can't demand someone to become this great man or woman of God without first showing them how to become more than they are so they can do more than they do. Sometimes I fear that we expect things from people that, can't, that they can't deliver because I have failed to help them become more than they are. Constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Let us leave the elementary things of Christ and go on to maturity. Don't demand that the teacher lay again the foundation of the faith every time. I have to lay the foundation again. Laying the foundation again. Okay, obviously you're not getting getting it, so we're going to lay it again, the foundation of what it means to repent, who Christ is, what he's done, and why I need to embrace him as Savior and Lord, the foundational basics of the faith. Let's go on to maturity so that we don't need anyone to show us the basics of the faith again. Let's go on to body life, to doing those things as difficult and as scary as that sometimes is. Repentance from dead works. Remember, he's talking to Jewish people who are really excited about working their way to goodness before God. We don't need to teach you again about the foundation of repentance from dead works. It's about grace. It's about faith and a faith toward God. Verse 2, end of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. That's all coming, but I, I don't need to lay the basic foundations in those things for you. We should move beyond that. Skip down to verse nine. Verses uh, three, <clears throat> excuse me. Verses three through eight discuss the dangers of falling away, and um, the, the horrific results of doing that in our lives if we were to do that. But verse nine, we're going to pick up from there, and he says, "Though we speak in this way, in other words, I'm talking to you pretty roughly here. I'm pretty aggressively telling you what I think about how you're doing, and though I'm speaking to you in this way, yet in your case." Beloved, these are people he loves, beloved. We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He says, we feel sure of better things concerning you. You don't have to stay there. If you're stuck today, you don't have to stay there. You can make a decision to do more than you do by becoming more than you are, by becoming more impressed by who Jesus is is and what he's done for you. Romans 2.4 is really a, a great verse. It's the forbearance of God that drives you to repentance. Forbearance is not a common word in our language these days, but patience, the forbearance, the patience of God should drive you to repentance. You see, think of how you were before you were saved. I didn't come to Christ until my late 20s. I know what I was. I'm not going back there. But you see, it's realizing how patient God was with me and with each of us. How patient he was, how forbearing he was, how he didn't put his boot on my neck and say, you're a 
goof. You loser, I'm done with you. Even today, if you have a bad week, he doesn't do that. He says, get up, come on. The good man falls seven times and gets up seven times. And the writer of Hebrews said, we feel sure of better things for you. You can get out of this, this doldrum you're in. We, can, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Well, what belongs to salvation? Well, body life. Uh, you get saved, salvation is here, and then you move into the Christian life. You start living in body life and serving the local church and being a, a blessing to other people within that context that God's placed you. Things that belong to salvation. Verse 10, for God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. Now, it's interesting. He just called some of them earlier like stupid rocks, and then here he's saying, you still do. You still do serve the saints. You still show your, you still work. You still love uh, uh, for his sake. You still do. Who is he talking about? I just thought we were dumb rocks. Well, no, you see, in, in, a, in, in any church of any size, you've got people who are like dumb rocks and people who are doing well. And the dumb rocks, you want to bring them along to make them better, to help them get better. And so he's recognizing there's people within the context of reading this letter who are, who are really doing well, and he's, he's commending them. And he's using hyperbole irony in verse 10. For God is not so unjust as to overlook. <laughs> he's being ironic. Of course God is not so unjust. In fact, God is the most just being in the universe. He is perfectly just. He's using ir- irony here to make his point. He doesn't forget your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. He doesn't forget. People may forget. People may disappoint. You may do something really helpful to a person, and that person might not even say, thank you, or I really appreciate that, or that was a blessing, or I really thank God for you. People may not do that, but God doesn't forget. Every small Drink of water you give to one of these little ones, to one of the believers. Anything you do in the smallest item, God remembers and knows. You'll forget him. But you know, at the judgment seat, it'll all be there. I'm reminded of this when when we left that church I referenced earlier. And as I said, we were there for many years doing various things. And after we left, Joyce and I were we were pretty pretty well wounded. We lost almost all of our relationships. And uh, one day when we were grieving all of the losses, uh, we were in the kitchen and Joyce said, uh, all those years, all those people, all those elders, pastors around the country and around the world that we worked with, and all the people in our small group, they're all gone. You know what that was? She said, you know what that was? That was a You know, that's, that's Christian swearing right there, right? <laughs> As Christian, she did it twice. And I said, well, I mean, how, do, how does a husband deal with that? I said, well, you know, I, I think that it probably was more than that, but, um, you know, we're hurting right now, and it'll, it'll be okay. We'll just, we're going to keep on. And I tell you that to lead into a next step of an illustration, how God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that, he showed, that you showed for his sake in serving the saints. Not long after that exchange we had, we were visiting another church. And you know how it goes. Uh, after the service, you gather together and you talk and you mingle with people. And a, a woman walked up to Joyce and said, I don't think you're going to remember me, 
But 20 years ago, I was pregnant and uh, unwed, pregnant. Now, how much courage did it take for that young woman to have this child, to carry this child as an unwed mother? But you see, she recollected how Joyce put together a baby shower for her, organized it, got a bunch of women together uh, to bless this soon-to-be single mom uh, so she could have a little head start in raising that child. And she introduced Joyce to this now 20-year-old young woman. And she said, you are such a blessing to me. Now, how did that happen? How did we go to some random church we were visiting for whatever reason, I don't even remember now, but we went to this church and we didn't know anybody there. And this one walks up to Joyce and says this. Why, why did that happen? You think that's by chance? Now, I'm not telling you that we should expect that kind of uh, reveal from God all the time, but I believe that God just said, okay, let me show you something. I remember. I am not so unjust that I would forget and overlook your work and the love you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And after that, maybe a month later, I was at an event involving a lot of Christians. Joyce and I were there, and a man I hadn't seen for 10 years, he walked up to me and he goes, hey, uh, bumblebees. And I remembered who he was and I laughed and I thought, "What, what is he talking about, you know? I said, bumblebees. He goes, yeah, bumblebees, bumblebees. Ha, we laughed. I, I said, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're saying. And he goes, bumblebees. You know, Philippians 4.12. Uh, you helped us remember and memorize Philippians 4.12. Remember, I have learned to get along with humble means. And he goes, and he told the story. And, and actually, it went like this. We were in our small group, and I was with the men, and, and I was trying to, we were trying to help each other memorize Philippians 4.12. And the New American Standard Version says, I have learned to get along with humble means. And we were stumbling over that. And so I said, okay, let's do a mind trick. Let's do something to help us remember this. We'll, we'll say well, I've learned to get along with bumblebees, and that'll help us remember humble means. And so everybody's saying, I've learned to get along with bumblebees. And they said, oh, yeah, I've learned to get along with humble means. It rhymes. It makes sense. Okay, it's fine. I think the, the Lord is okay with that. But they had the verse. All the guys had the verse, and me too. And he goes, I really appreciated your, your willingness to help us learn that scripture by doing a mind trick that I had never thought of before. And I thought, Oh, great. I had forgotten that totally. But you see, again, I had no recollection of that at all. But the Lord said, okay, I'm going to give you a little piece of bread here, Gordon, to chew on for a while. God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love you showed for his sake, for his sake, not to build your reputation, but for his sake, in serving the saints as you still do, as you still do. Verse 11, we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. It's interesting that word earnest could easily be translated diligence. Second Peter, remember, repeatedly talks about diligence. It's the same Greek word. In fact, the New, uh, the New American Standard or the New International Version or the New King James, that word is translated as diligence. For whatever reason, the ESV translators decided to use the word earnestness, but it is in excellent keeping with what we learned in 2 Peter. Earnestness, diligence, you're not going to grow if you don't decide to do so. You have to decide to do so. If you want to get fit, if you want to get better, if you want to learn something, it requires diligence. It's the same thing in the spiritual life. 
show the same earnestness or diligence to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. There's that word again. You may not have a settled state of being that's uh, lazy and stupid so that you may be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We are going to inherit the promise. If we know Christ, each of us knows Christ. Colossians uh, uh, 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily for the Lord, not for men or women. Do your work heartily for the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve. So I want to tell you, whenever you serve in the church, despite maybe disappointments or hurts or rejections or all the complexities that go along with living the Christian life, you do it for Jesus, okay? Remember to do it for Christ and be so impressed with him that it doesn't matter what people say. I'm going to take whatever uh, sharp edges I have and I'm going to let the Lord shave them off and I'm going to go back in the fight and do my best for the church. And that's what he wants. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who have, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. That's, again, a reference to the presence of people who are further down the path than you are. Watch their lives, imitate their lives, I'm looking out and there's some what I call gray hairs out here. And we need to love and appreciate these folks who have walked the walk for many, many years. Respect and appreciate them and look at their lives and imitate their faith and patiently and their patience as well to inherit the promises. Well, let me give you a few suggestions for how to apply this. Don't be a consumer of the church. Don't just be a consumer and sit here and listen and, and, you know, evaluate. Did I like that guitar player? Did I appreciate that sermon? Did I, you know, we are blessed to have excellent preaching here through Lucas. But, you know, there are guest preachers like myself or others who come here and maybe we're not as skilled, maybe we're not as polished. Um, but a preacher who's preaching the Word of God has something from God for you. He has something for you individually. And we need to appreciate the fact that the man is up here delivering God's word to you. So take what's good, be gracious with what is not so hot, and appreciate what he's delivering for you. So don't be a consumer in the church. I don't like that, I like that, that, was, that tasted good, that was not so hot. Uh, offer your time and service. I know the days are difficult with this virus. Offer your time, offer yourself as best you can. Offer yourself in body life to do the one another's to bless everybody in this church and even in beyond in your community. Know and be known. Know one another and be known by others. No cliques, no closed groups, uh, no sense that uh, uh, you're, not, you're not one of the cool kids so you don't get to be in my group. That's not, <laughs> that's not good. That's what Jesus taught me about Bill. In essence, he took me by the, well, in gently, in Jesus' way. He took me and said, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like your attitude. You need to change that. I want you to invite Bill to your group. So I did. And you notice, Bill's the only guy that I'm really talking about and to an extent here. Bill's gone. God remembers, even if people forget, I'm not getting enough credit, I'm not getting enough, you know, pats on the back. Okay, you know, if you did it for Christ, he's going to remember, and it's on your spiritual resume. It's on your spiritual resume. He does not forget. Finally, I want to close with a look at Jesus' high priestly 
prayer, and this ought to be an encouragement to us. You know, the high priestly prayer from John 17, where just before he goes to the cross, he's, he's about to be abused, and all the horrible things he endured for us on the cross. And listen to his prayer. Uh, this is John 17, starting in verse 14. And whenever you see the word them here, you're going to see the word them here repeated. Think of yourself. Put your name in there. And I'll explain to you why that's allowed in a few minutes. But starting in verse 14, he says, I have given them. He's talking about his disciples. We're disciples, if we know Christ. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth, or purified, or set apart, sanctified, set apart, purified, in truth. Verse 20, this is the key. I do not ask this for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. I don't ask for these only, these disciples only, he says. I ask also for those who will believe in me through their word, through the scriptures. That's us. That's you. And that's me, if we know Jesus. He prayed for you, and he prayed for me. You think he didn't know who I was, or you? He sure did. He sure does. For those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one just as you are, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's about him. It's always about him. You do the work you do for him, not for anyone else and not for your own jollies or your own pleasures or pride, whatever it might be. Do it for him. He prayed for you. Once we get impressed with who Jesus is, what he's done for us, his patience, his forbearance for us, there's no way we can be held back from being diligent for him. If we try to be diligent by grinding our teeth and say, Monday morning I'm going to be diligent for the faith, you may last for a day or two, but you're going to fade. Be diligent in your relationship with him, and then you'll be able to run. You'll become more than you are in order to do more than you do to do body life. Let's pray.